This message was presented at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. I am persuaded that neither life nor death nor principalities nor powers in heaven or on earth and hell can separate me from the love of Jesus in Christ our Lord. Thank you so much for the music. I have been blessed and greatly inspired by the service this morning. I've been here all week. This is, I think, the 10th or 11th GYC meeting that my wife and I have attended. And every time we come, I think we leave more inspired than when we came. GYC represents the finest and the best of what it means to be a Seventh-day Adventist young person preparing for the coming of Christ in the final generation. And so we are deeply thankful for the way that God is using the GYC leadership, for the way he's using young people to play a meaningful part in the finishing of his work on earth. I've been praying that God would touch all of our lives and the Spirit would work powerfully during the message this morning, so let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you with all our hearts that we live on the knife edge of eternity. We thank you that Jesus, the one who died on Calvary's cross, reaches out to us today as the living Christ, the resurrected Christ in the sanctuary above. And that from that sanctuary, he longs to minister grace to our hearts, strength to our lives. He longs to impart to us power for mission. And so we open our hearts to you this morning. We sense that this is not an ordinary hour in Earth's history. And we recognize that in this generation, you are raising up young people and adults to empower them by your spirit for the finishing of your work on earth. And so we open our hearts for the special blessing of this hour. Whatever blessings we received in the past are not sufficient enough for the present. So we pray thee that you would come with your almighty power and bless in a special way as we open your word in Christ's name. Amen. This past summer, the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists was held in San Antonio, Texas. And it was historic in many ways. One of the ways that was historic is that for the first time in the history of our Seventh-day Adventist church, we had 65 delegates from mainland China with us at the General Conference session. And they brought so much to the session. I spent time with them each afternoon of the session, studying the Bible together. We left the main meeting and opened Scripture and spent an hour or two studying. Once the general conference session was over, I had the privilege with my wife of traveling for two, two and a half weeks with the delegates from China. They came to the general conference. We visited Washington, D.C., and then we traveled to early Advent history sites. And in each of those sites, we studied the Word of God. We went to the Miller Farm and studied the significance of the sanctuary. We traveled to Washington, New Hampshire, the first Seventh-day Adventist church, and studied the significance of the Sabbath. We traveled to Hiram Edson's farm in upstate New York and spent time in that barn, reconstructed of course, studying the sanctuary message. Traveled across to Battle Creek, Michigan and visited the old sanitarium and studied the origin of the Adventist church and the Adventist health message and went on to Andrews University. As we traveled together during this period of time, the stories, the testimonies of these stalwart, faithful brothers and sisters from China deeply impressed me. I'll tell you the story of somebody that I will call, not their real name, Mr. and Mrs. Wong. 
Mr. Wong was a member of the Red Guard Chinese Army. And I, I should say we were grateful and thankful to the Chinese government for allowing these delegates to come. And we, we are thankful to God for the officials that have given the measure of religious liberty that they have in China. But many, many years ago, in 1991-1993, Mr. Wong was a member of the Red Guard. He was an avowed atheist. He felt that all Christians were ignorant fools that believed fables that you couldn't have any confidence in. When he came home from the army on leave, he discovered that something amazing had happened in his city. From 1991 to 1993, in one city in China, there was a mighty spiritual revival. And in one Seventh-day Adventist church in that city, for three years, there were between two and 3,000 people baptized each year. That local congregation grew to well over 10,000. It was amazing moving of God's grace, an amazing outpouring of God's Spirit. When Mr. Wong came home from the army, he discovered that his wife had become a Seventh-day Adventist, that some of his brothers had become Adventists, and his father and mother had become Adventists and joined that local congregation. He was furious. He was incredibly angry. As he told me the story, he said, Pastor, I could not understand why my own wife would accept such fables, such nonsense, such intellectual superficiality. He said, I was angry. I ranted. I raved. I yelled at her. She, he said, I threatened her in a variety of ways. I would go to the Adventist church and break up their worship services with my rants and anger and rage. He said, then, one day I came with rocks and stones and threw them through the windows of the church. I felt I had to do everything I could dis to dissuade my wife from this foolishness. His wife developed a very serious eye infection. And that eye infection threatened her with loss of sight. She was taken to the hospital for a very serious operation to save her vision. And as the surgeons operated on her, she of course had a patch on one eye, and her physician said to her, we don't want you to strain your other eye by any reading, because if you do that, you may lose total vision. One day, her husband came into her room, and he saw her reading the Bible with a patch on one eye looking at the Word of God. And he said, I thought the physicians told you not to do that. And she said, well, I needed strength. I need the strength that comes from God's Word. And I could not go for months without reading the Word of God. He looked at her and he said, you are foolish. As your husband, I'm not going to allow you to go blind reading the Word of God. Give me that book and I'll read it for you and to you. <laughs> Praise God. Praise God. He said, what do you want me to read? She said, read the book of Job. Now, I am not sure that that's the first book I would introduce people to in the Bible. Read the book of Job. But God's ways are mysterious. Mr. Wong said to me, Pastor Mark, I began to read the book of Job. And I saw the trials that this man was going through. And I recognized that I was putting my wife through some of the trials. She was the modern Job. And he said, I kept reading and reading. And faith grew in my heart as I saw Job trusted God in spite of the trials. As I saw Job trusted God in spite of what was going on in his life. He came to the end of the book of Job, and he was amazed. If you have your Bible, and I know you do, take it and read, turn to Job chapter 42. Job chapter 42. And look there at verse 10. Mr. Wong said, Pastor Mark, I, I read the book of Job to my wife. I saw Job's faith. I saw Job's courage. I saw Job's confidence in God. And I was absolutely amazed. He then said, I came to the end of the book and I read Job 42, verse 10. 
and the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. Indeed, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. And Mr. Wong said, Pastor Mark, I was so amazed in a God like that. As his wife continued to have treatment, Mr. Wong did not admit what God was doing in his life. As she would go to treatments to see the physician, he would take the Bible out of the drawer by her bed and read it. And secretly he read the Bible. Until that day in that hospital room, Mr. Wong knelt down and said, Jesus, I'm yours. Jesus, I can resist you no longer. Mr. Wong today is the part of a pastoral team that in one pastoral district has 20,000 members and 400 churches and groups. If God can take a member of the Red Army, an atheist, one who believes that Christianity is nonsense, and lead him to be a mighty pastor for God, what can God do for your life? What can God do with my life? When I asked Mr. Wong, what was the most significant thing that led you to make that decision? What led to your conversion? If he were here this morning giving his testimony, this is what he would say. He would tell you that there was one major reason. His wife was faithful to God and did not compromise her integrity. The Holy Spirit used her powerfully to reach her husband. Now, there's one thing for certain. A half-hearted, compromising Christianity is not going to impact the world for Christ. One pastor put it this way, God will not use a compromised life to reach a compromised world. God will use a life that is given over to Him, that is a demonstration of the message that through the power of Jesus Christ and His love, He can transform our lives and set us free. If the world is looking for anything today, it is looking for young people, it's looking for adults that have authentic, genuine Christianity. A sham, a pretense, hypocrisy will never reach the world. A sugar-coated gospel will not transform a society by the grace of Christ and the power of the living Christ. No formal, ritualistic Christianity will do. No half-hearted Christianity to do. Young people with divided hearts and compromised lives will not impact a world for Jesus Christ. Ellen White adds this. Ellen White makes an amazingly penetrating comment in a manuscript 16 and uh, written in 1890. She says, let it be understood that Seventh-day Adventists can make no compromise. In your opinions and in your faith, there must not be the least appearance of wavering. One of the sterling examples in Scripture of an undivided heart of an uncompromised faith. One of the sterling examples in Scripture is Daniel. Throughout his life, he stands as a sterling example of faithfulness and loyalty. And this morning, we want to spend some time studying the life of Daniel. We're going to look at chapter 1 in the book of Daniel, then fast forward to chapter 6. In Daniel chapter 1, Daniel is approximately 17 years old. He's in his teens. And he faces an incredibly amazing test. In Daniel chapter 6, it is about 65 or 66 years later, and Daniel is 83 years old. He faces an amazing test. Wherever you are on your spiritual journey, whether you are young or old, Satan is an equal opportunity employer. He does not have any prejudice in those whom he tempts. You may be young, you may be old. You may be Hispanic or Asian or African or from North America. Your language may be Spanish or, or your language may be Italian. Your language may be Portuguese. Your language may be Tagalog. You may speak one of the African dialects. You may speak English. But that does not exempt you from temptation. Satan is an equal opportunity tempter, tempts men and women, young and old. 
merely because you have walked with Christ and been faithful to Christ for 20 or 30 years does not mean in any way that you're exempt from the temptations of Satan. And one of the things we see in the life of Daniel is the life of faithfulness from the beginning to the end. Daniel did not merely start the journey, Daniel finished the journey. And he found in Christ one that was the author and finisher of his faith. He found in Christ one who he could hold the beginning of his confidence strong to the end. So I invite you to take your Bible and turn to the book of Daniel. Psalms, Proverbs, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1 begins with the great controversy scene. Look at Daniel chapter 1 and verse 1. Here we begin with the great controversy. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So here you have two kings, Nebuchadnezzar and Jehoiakim. You have two cities, Jerusalem and Babylon. Babylon, the citadel of evil. Babylon, the center of idol worship. Babylon, the center of egotistical, proud, man-made religion. Jerusalem, the sanctuary of God, the Shekinah glory of God, the people of God, the law of God. Babylon, the city of falsehood and error. Jerusalem, the city of truth. Nebuchadnezzar attacks Jerusalem, and Jerusalem falls to Nebuchadnezzar. So in chapter 1, you see the great controversy. Verse 1, the controversy between good and evil, the controversy between Christ and Satan. Daniel and his young teenage friends are taken captive. Nebuchadnezzar longs to bring the brightest, the most intelligent, the, those that are, are, are handsome and physically attractive. He longs to bring a group of youth that have the potential for leadership that will be educated for three years at the University of Babylon so Nebuchadnezzar can send them back as his emissaries to Jerusalem. The devil lo loves to attack the brightest, the best, the most intelligent because he knows that if he gets the leaders, the followers will follow. And the devil still uses that strategy today on Christian Seventh-day Adventist young people. If he can capture the minds of the brightest and the best, if he can lead them from faithfulness to God, he knows that if he gets the leaders, the followers are going to follow. So here in the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar takes captive the most intelligent, the brightest young people, brings them to the university, uh, to Babylon, to educate them in the university of Babylon. Early in that captivity, Daniel and his friends are ushered into the banquet hall of Babylon. Everything is set on those tables to tempt the taste, to satisfy the palate, to delight the eyes. The music is playing. The tables are set. The royal banquet is there. Now, there's an interesting aside that I want you to see in Daniel chapter 1. Notice it in verse 2. And the Lord. Now, that word for Lord there is a word that means the one who is in control over all, in spite of the captivity, in spite of the apparent defeat, God is still sovereign. He is still on his throne. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God. What are the articles of the house of God? The candlestick from the sanctuary. What are the articles from the house of God? The articles that were in the sanctuary that the Shekinah glory reflected off. Those golden emblems that were in the sanctuary of Jerusalem were taken, and where were they brought? Daniel chapter 1, verse 2. And he brought the articles to the treasure house of his God. Who was his God? Belmarduk, Bel the chief God. There were 13 chief gods of Babylon. Belmarduk Bel was the chief God. 
Belmardic sat in a golden temple on a golden throne before a golden table. Can you imagine it? The very candlestick in the sanctuary, the very emblems of the sanctuary that reflected the Shekinah glory of God, the very presence of God. Nebuchadnezzar came into the sanctuary, took those out, brought them to the temple, the pagan temple of the idol of Belmarduk. He put them there. Daniel and his friends are ushered into that banquet room. They see some of those glittering golden articles that had been in the sanctuary. And I can just imagine that Nebuchadnezzar was in effect saying, if your God is so supreme, why are you in captivity to us? If your God is so supreme, why are the articles from the sanctuary here? If your God is so supreme, why is Jerusalem in ruins and defeated? Here, Daniel and his friends go in to that sanctuary. And they're invited to defile their health and defile their minds. The food on those tables was offered to the god Belmarduk. To eat that food was to worship and give tribute to the pagan gods. Also, Daniel was wise enough to know that that wine would defile his mind, that those alcoholic beverages would destroy brain cells, that they would affect conscience, reason, and judgment and make him less capable of responding to the Holy Spirit's impact on the mind. He recognized that the unclean foods on that table would destroy his health. And so Daniel knew that the decision that day was not a small one. He recognized that it was much more than a glass of alcohol, much more than unclean foods, but that it was the compromising of his integrity. He recognized that it was much more than simply that one choice, because that choice would lead to another choice and another choice and another choice. So in one of the most magnificent passages in Scripture, Daniel, the first chapter, and the eighth verse. The pressure to conform was enormous. With the destruction of Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar claimed that his gods were superior to the God of Jehovah. Notice what Daniel says, what it's recorded about Daniel. Daniel 1, verse 8, but Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank, Therefore, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. The scripture says, Daniel purposed in his heart. What does the word purposed mean? Purpose means he decided. Purpose means he determined. Purpose means he chose. In the heart, in the Old Testament, the heart is the seat of the intellect. It is the center of the emotions. It is the center of our thought processes. There are two passages in Proverbs that are helpful here. Proverbs 4, verse 23. Now keep your finger in Daniel 1. We're going to go back to it. Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23. We're studying this idea Daniel purposed in his heart. What is this heart? Daniel chapter 4. In the Bible, the heart is the center of intellect, the center of emotions. It is, the, it is the thought center from which decisions are made. In Proverbs 4, verse 23, the Scripture says, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Keep your heart, keep your mind, guard your mind. Proverbs 23, verse 7 adds, as a man or a woman does what? You know the text. Say it with me. As a man thinks in his what? Heart, so is he. You know, a number of years ago, Isaac Newton, that famous hymn writer, you know, Isaac Newton wrote between 650 and 750 hymns. Some scholars say it was 650, some say 700, some say 750. You know, he wrote those great hymns like, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross Upon Which the Prince of Glory Died. Isaac Newton, who had written so many of those hymns, was not a real large man. He was about five foot three, five foot four, quite thin, 
And one day in London, there was a parade in Isaac Watts's honor. And people gathered to give pay tribute to this mighty hymn writer of God. And they gathered along the streets of London. Many of them got up on balconies so they would see this mighty man of God. They had sung his majestic hymns, and they had pictured a man six feet, six one, six two, many who didn't know him. They had pictured this huge man. Isaac Watts was riding in a open-covered, kind of like, like carriage. And as he was riding in this horse-drawn carriage, he was kind of hunched over. By now he was old, and he didn't even look like he was 5'4". He looked like he was about 5'1 or 5 feet. He was kind of hunched over. And there was one of these high-society women that was sitting in the balcony. And she looked over and saw this carriage. And she looked, and as the carriage passed, she was one of those women that often spoke, or men too, i got to be careful, I don't get myself in trouble here. Uh, she was one of those individuals, uh, that's good, who thought second and spoke first. Have you ever met anybody like that? It's always good to think before you speak, not to speak before you think. But anyway, she blurted out, Isaac Watts is coming by, and she bursts, bursts out and says, What? Are you Isaac Watts? She was so surprised to see this little shriveled up man. You know, Watts just um, always thought in poetry. Um, and, um, you know, one time his father said, why your eyes open in prayer? And Watts said, I could not say my prayers when the mouse ran up the stairs. So he always thought, you know, in poetry. So this woman says, what? You Isaac Watts? And he looked, he motioned for the carriage to stop. It did. He stood up to his full five foot three or five foot four length and he said, Madam, could I in fancy grasp the poles or hold creation in my hand? I'd still be measured by my mind, for the mind is the measure of a man. The great battle in the last days of earth's history is not a battle in the Middle East. It is a battle for your mind. And the devil is focusing on every young person today, doing everything he can with mass media, with video. He's doing everything he can through the party culture, the pleasure culture. He is doing everything he can to capture your thought patterns because what you habitually think about develops attitudes. Attitudes lead to actions. Repeated actions lead to habits, and habits develop character. How, who are we? We are the sum choices of our thoughts, our attitudes, our actions, and our habits. Character is what defines us, and the choices we make determine the characters that we will have. The battle is a battle for your intellect. It's a battle for your mind. It's a battle to control your thoughts. And Satan will do everything he can in this godless secular society to influence the thought processes because the mind is the seat of our emotions. Now, writing of Daniel and his friend's courageous stand for right, Ellen White makes this telling, this incredibly telling observation in Prophets and Kings, page 483. She's commenting on Daniel 1, verse 8, that says Daniel purposed in his heart to serve God. And she says, should they compromise with wrong in this instance by yielding to the pressure of circumstances? their departure from principle would weaken their sense of right and their appearance of wrong. Now let's pause on that sentence. What happens if I compromise my integrity? What happens when the Holy Spirit convicts me to do something, and in spite of the Holy Spirit's conviction, in spite of the clear teachings of the Word of God, I compromise that integrity? What happens? What happens is my perception of what is right and my perception of what is wrong is colored. 
so I can no longer fully discern rightness and wrongness. And as the result of that, I will then ultimately think that what I'm doing is okay and justify that. So the danger of compromise is that not only does it lead one on a path contrary to the will of God, it creates a fogginess, a murkiness in the mind so that sin cannot be discerned. Ellen White continues in which she says, should they compromise with wrong in this instance, this is Prophets and Kings 43, in this instance by yielding to the pressure of circumstances their departure from principle would weaken their sense of right and their appearance of wrong. The first wrong step would lead to others until their connection with heaven would be severed. They would be swept away by temptation. Samuel Johnson, a popular author, put it this way, the chains of habit are too weak to be felt until they are too strong to be broken. The chains of habit are too weak to be felt until they are too strong to be broken. C.S. Lewis, in those screw tape letters, that famous narrative of Lewis, makes an interesting observation. One of his characters, Wormwood, says this, Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, the soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. You see, courage, not compromise, brings the smile of God upon his people, and it brings God's blessings. Daniel made a rock-solid decision. He purposed in his heart to serve God. And as the result of that, he opened his mind to the blessings of God. Back to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel graduates three years later from the University of Babylon with honors. He graduates three years later from the University of Babylon at the head of his class. Daniel's decision to purpose in his heart to serve God not only to refuse the wine, not only to refuse the unclean foods, but to negotiate with Melzar, the chief host, for a 10-day trial on a vegetarian diet. Daniel demonstrates mentally, spiritually, and physically the superiority of God's way of life. And there on that vegetarian diet, Daniel excels in class not simply because of his diet, but because of the blessing of God upon one's life that was totally consecrated to him. We look there at Daniel chapter 1, and we see at the end of Daniel chapter 1 the Scriptures recording the faithfulness of this man of God. Daniel 1 verse 17, as for these four young men, Daniel, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Verse 20, in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers that were in his realm. Does it pay to serve God? Does it pay to live an uncompromised life? Does it pay to have an undivided heart? When we come to Christ and we say, Jesus, everything I have, all that I am is yours. All I want to know is what pleases you. All I want to do is the will of God. When we make that decision in our lives and we purpose in our hearts to please God in the things we take into our body, to please God in the things we take into our mind, to please God in every aspect of our worship. When we make that decision, we open our lives to the abundant blessings of God. The last verse of Daniel 1 is significant. Daniel chapter 1, let your eyes drop down to the last verse. Thus Daniel continued until the first year of King Darius. Nations rise and fall. Babylon comes on the scene of history. Medo-Persia comes on the scene of history, but Daniel continues. Kings rise and fall. There is Nebuchadnezzar and his son and his son, and finally Darius the, the Mede and Cyrus the Persian. 
Governments rise and fall. Kings come and go. But Daniel continues. God is looking for a generation of young people today that are powerful witnesses in the Babylon of this world. And God will use them to touch the kings and queens and princes. God will use them to impact a postmodern secular society in the Western world. God is looking for young people today that purpose in their heart like Daniel did. He's looking for adults that make a decision to live an uncompromised life for God. And when God gets that group of Daniels today, that group of Esthers today, that group of Josephs today, when God has that group of faithful men and women today who want only one thing, who long for heaven more than they long for, for earth, who long for eternity more than they long for the things of time or the things of heaven, appeal to them more than the things of this earth. When God has that group of people, he will pour out his spirit in abundant measure and the work of God will be finished on earth rapidly, quickly. Daniel was faithful to God when he was 17 years old. But throughout the years, Daniel maintained his faithfulness. And we turn to Daniel, the sixth chapter. We come now to the end of Daniel's life. Daniel, the sixth chapter. And we come to the end of Daniel's life. Daniel now is 83 years old. Medo-Persia overthrows Babylon. Darius appoints Daniel, along with two others, as governors. The nation of Medo-Persia is divided into 120 areas. There's a prince over each area. Then there are three governors in charge of those 120 areas, and Daniel becomes the first. Now, here is the interesting thing to me. How old was Daniel at this time? Well, if he was in his late teens in chapter 1, about 20 when he graduated from the University of Babylon, and if Nebuchadnezzar overthrew Jerusalem in 605, and if Medo-Persia overthrew Babylon in 539, there's 66 years there, and if Daniel was about 17 when he was taken into captivity, he's about 83. Now, the interesting thought to me is this. Do you take an 83-year-old Jew and put him in charge of the entire country of Medo-Persia? There must have been something so incredibly special about Daniel's life. At 83 years old, because he had followed the principles of God in making positive choices in his life and had not defiled his physical, mental, or spiritual health, he was still incredibly sharp. He, he still had razor-edge thinking. The health practices that he had followed and the decisions to live an uncompromised life that he had followed with the blessing of God enabled him to serve for generations in his life. Living an uncompromised life is not some ritualistic legalism. It is rather in accepting the abundant life that Jesus Christ offers to us. Anything that Christ asks us to give up is only destructive anyway. The way of the cross and the way of self-denial through the cross at Calvary is the way to the abundant life because Jesus said in John 10, verse 10, I have come that they might have what? Life, and they might have it more abundantly. So Daniel, faithful to God. The governors became concerned about that. The princes became concerned. They became jealous. And there's one thing that one notices here in this chapter, Daniel 6, verse 4 and onward. Sin never gets smaller. It always gets larger. They look in verse 4, so the governors in the satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom that they could find, but they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful, nor was there any error or fault found in him. They searched everything they could about Daniel. They bugged his royal telephone. They hacked his royal email. 
They opened every mailbox. They even checked his Twitter account. And they said, we know that everybody is somewhat dishonest. We know everybody pads their pockets a little bit. Maybe Daniel is putting something away for his retirement account. Nobody's perfect. They examined his private and public life. They checked his finance. They analyzed his words. They looked at his commands and decrees. Everything he did was scrutinized, and they found nothing, absolutely nothing, because Daniel was in pub private what he was in public. What are you watching on the Internet when nobody else knows? What are you looking at on television when nobody else knows? What are you cramming into your mouth when nobody else knows? Are you the same person in private as you are in public? Are you the same person when you go to university or college that when you come to GYC? Daniel's heart was undivided. And when they examined his life, there was nothing, nothing that they could find by the grace of God, not by some superhuman willpower. It was not that Daniel overcame by willpower. It was that Daniel's will was surrendered to the one that had power. He did not overcome by willpower, but his will was surrendered to the one that had power. When he purposed in his heart to serve God, God gave him the power to accomplish that choice. You and I are weak, but God has given us the capacity. God has given us the power of choice. Daniel made that choice. Daniel, the sixth chapter, to serve the living God. And even when the decree went forth that anybody who did not serve God would be anybody who served any other god except the king would be cast into a den of lions. Daniel recognized that he had nothing to hide. It's a wonderful thing in life when you have nothing to hide. When if somebody checked your private life and saw what kind of books you're reading, what kind of magazines, what kind of television programs or internet you're surfing, that that was in harmony with God's will. The, in verse 5, the wise men say, the satraps say, wise only in the wisdom of Babylon, the rulers of Babylon would be more accurate to put it. Verse 5, then these men said, we shall not find any charge against this Daniel, against we find it against the law of God. The unchangeable law of the Medes and Persians came in contact with the immutable law of God. Church and state united, and worship was decreed and enforced. But God had a man, God had an individual who sensed that his loyalty was to the king of kings, not to the king of Babylon. Once again, it end time. There will be, according to the prophecies of the book of Revelation, a union of church and state powers. But once again, God will have men and women that witness to the glory of His name, that witness to the might of His power in a final generation. The Bible says, as you look at it there, these satraps, these governors, become jealous of Daniel. Jealousy leads to envy. Envy leads to something else. Verse 7, they come before King Darius. King Darius, live forever. All the governors of the kingdom, the administrators, the satraps, the counselors, the advisors have consulted together to establish a royal statue. What do you know about that statement immediately? What do you know about it? It is a bold-faced lie. Did all the governors meet? Was Daniel one of those three governors? He was. Did Daniel meet with them? He did not. So notice carefully, 
First you have jealousy. The jealousy leads to envy. The envy leads to lying. And the lying leads to the willingness to put an innocent man to death. Starting down the road of compromise, one knows, never knows where that compromise is going to end. Envy to jealousy, jealousy to lying, lying to the willing to put the innocent man to death. Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. Daniel 6, verse 10. Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home. And in the upper room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave God thanks as he did before. Daniel knew that without prayer, there was no power. Daniel would not allow his allegiance to Darius to compromise his relationship with God. Daniel remembered some things. He remembered that God had impressed him and empowered him as a teenager 65 years before to keep his heart pure before God. Daniel remembered the God that gave him wisdom to excel in his comprehensive exams in Babylon. Daniel remembered that God had given him wisdom and knowledge and skill. God remembered that God preserved his life and enabled him to interpret the king's dream in chapter 2. Daniel remembered that God had delivered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace in chapter 3. Daniel remembered that God had enabled him to hold the Babylonian empire together for seven years when Nebuchadnezzar ate grass. Daniel remembered that God had translated the writing on the wall for him in chapter 5 when the Babylonian empire fell. Daniel remembered that God had given him the position of the first governor of the empire. Daniel remembered these things, and Daniel knew that God was the source of his strength. Whatever test you face, whatever difficulty you face, whatever challenge you face, remember that God is the source of your strength. God is bigger than the mountain you have to climb. God is greater than the problem you have to face. God is larger than the challenges that lie before you when you leave GYC. We serve not a small, narrow God, but our God is great. Our God is powerful. Our God is greater than the powers of hell. On the cross of Calvary, he triumphed over the principalities and powers of hell. He lives in the sanctuary above, and our God reigns. Now for Daniel, prayer wasn't a few trite phrases repeated over and over, or some ritual memorized formula to Daniel. Prayer was the breath of the soul, was the vitality, the life of the soul. Daniel kneels to pray, and as he does, those governors and princes come running, if they can run, because they have been eating of the royal banquet hall and they are somewhat rotund and they can't run too fast. I imagine them crawling behind bushes. I imagine these slithering snakes looking up to condemn the man of God. And Daniel prays. They run back to the king and say, King, King, Daniel is praying. He doesn't regard your decree. He doesn't regard you. The king tries to deliver Daniel, but he can't. He can't and keep his position, and he's not willing to risk his neck by violating the law of the Medes and the Persians. So the king goes home that night to sleep, and Daniel's thrown in a lion's den. Now the Bible says that as the king goes into the palace, his royal musicians want to play sweet lullabies and he says, no music tonight. They want to feed him Babylonian foods, a good supper, banquet. No food tonight. The Bible says, he says, no music, and he fasts all night. He gets into bed, slips on his royal silk pajamas, puts his head on some royal pillow, and there in a palace, in a mansion, in the most lavish building in the then-known world, the king who has everything can't sleep. He tosses and turns. His stomach is in knots. He's got some kind of headache and sweats running down his face. And he tosses and turns all night. But the Bible says Daniel's thrown into a lion's den. And in this preacher's imagination, Daniel is in some stinky, smelly lion's den with lions that have not been house-trained, with lions that may not have been washed for a while, and he puts his head on some big cat and goes to sleep. What a contrast. 
What a contrast. When there's peace in your heart, that peace passes all understanding. Peace comes not from what my hands possess, but from what my heart possesses. Peace comes not from what I have, but from the one that has me. And when our lives are surrendered to Christ, even in the lion's den, even in the lion's den, there is peace. There is peace. Here in that lion's den, the sun rises over the lion's den. It rises over the kingdom of Darius. The king runs to that lion's den. And in Daniel chapter 6, verse 22, it says, the king cries out to Daniel in verse 20, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Now what does Daniel say? My God has sent his lions and shut the lions' mouths so that they have not hurt me because I was found innocent before him. My God has shut the lions' mouths. There is a lion tamer in the house. There is a lion tamer in the house. When the lions of lust roar in your ears, there is a lion tamer. When the lions of anger or bitterness roar in your ears, there is a lion tamer. When because of a past, your life feels shattered and broken because of what happened to you in childhood, there is a lion tamer. When the words of criticism are about ready to come out of your mouth, there is a lion tamer. When you're ready to reach for a glass of alcohol, there is a lion tamer. Jesus Christ, the Bible says, the devil, walking around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. But the lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus the living Christ, is stronger than the temptations that we face, stronger than the little impish devil's lion. I thank God for the testimony of a heathen king echoing and re-echoing down the centuries. A heathen king makes his declaration because of the faithfulness, because of the loyalty of Daniel. Daniel was called by God. Daniel was chosen by God. Daniel was faithful to God. And when you're chosen by God in a final generation, when you are called by God in a final generation, when you are faithful to God in a final generation, your life will be a testimony before kings and queens, before your neighbors, before your friends. It will be a testimony in the university where you go, in the computer lab where you work. It'll be a testimony, a powerful testimony to others. Here, a heathen king cries out. Look at what Darius says. He says seven things about God. Notice, he is the living God. Who is this God? He's alive. God has not wound this earth up like a clock, and he's not some absentee landlord. In our lives, God is alive. He is the living God. He is steadfast forever. He is just when I need him, Jesus is near. Just when I falter, just when I fear, just when I need him most, Jesus is steadfast forever. Who is he? Number one, he's alive. Number two, he's steadfast forever. Number three, his kingdom is that which shall not be destroyed. The kingdoms of Babylon, the kingdoms of Medo-Persia, the kingdoms of Greece, the kingdoms of Rome, the kingdoms of this world have faded away into insignificance. But there is an eternal, everlasting kingdom coming that will never, ever pass away. Daniel's eyes were on the eternal kingdom, not on the kingdoms of this world. Notice, he is the living God. He's alive. He's steadfast forever. He never changes. That's two. His kingdom is going to last forever. That's three. His dominion shall ensure to the end. That's four. He delivers. Five. He is the God that delivers. What are you facing today? What temptation? What challenge? Discouragement, despondency, fear. What do you face? He is the living God. He is steadfast forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed. His dominion shall endure to the end. He delivers. He rescues. And in your life, he wants to show signs. In your life, he wants to show wonders. In your life, he wants to do something miraculous to you, for you. God is once again looking for young people 
who through his strength and by his power have undivided hearts and live lives of loyalty. God is once again looking for young people who are wholly consecrated, totally sold out for him. Their commitment to Christ and heaven's principles will impact their families. It'll impact their neighborhoods. It'll impact their schools. It'll impact their universities. It'll impact their jobs. It'll impact their world, their workplaces. These are God's world changers. Every place they go, wherever they find themselves, they're positive influences for the kingdom of God. Their lives speak of honesty. Their lives speak of purity. Their lives speak of integrity. Their lives speak of diligence. Their lives speak of faithfulness. They can be depended upon through them. The earth is lightened with the glory of God. Through them, Christ's character is revealed before a waiting world and a watching universe. This is your destiny. This is your calling. Do not sell out cheap. This is God's plan for your life. We accept God's plan for your life. Will you say, Jesus, I want to live an uncompromised life. If you want to be a Daniel in this generation, if you want to live a life uncompromised, I want you to stand and I want to pray for you. You just want to say, Lord, with all of my weakness, all my frailty, all my brokenness, you know what my heart is. That's the kind of life that I want to live. That's the kind of person I want to be. I don't want to live some half-hearted Christian life that is a life of compromise. That is the kind of person, God, that I want to be. Now a special appeal for somebody here. Is there somebody here that I, I spoke today, God brought to your mind certain areas of compromise in your life. And you began to think about it. And you said, Lord, I want to be done with that compromise. I want to be done with it. As we pray, do you want to just give that thing to Jesus now? Somebody here, God's heart is touching. Something he wants you to surrender to him. Some attitude, some habit. Something in your life that's not in harmony with his will. For somebody, this is decision day. For somebody, you're going to leave this auditorium different. You want to just raise your hand and say, God, I'm giving you that thing. You know what it is. God, I'm giving you that thing. God, I'm giving you that attitude. God, I'm giving you that habit. We make the choice, and God's power comes down. We don't overcome by willpower. Our wills are united with divine power. You can put your hand down. One last appeal. Last evening, I met with an individual who said, Pastor Mark, as I've come to GYC, I've never been baptized. And God just touched my heart, and I want to look forward to Bible baptism. There may be many of you in two classes. First, maybe as a young person you've came to you've come to this meeting and you've never yet made that decision to follow Jesus in baptism. And God is speaking to your heart right now. God is touching your heart right now. And you want to leave this place saying, God, I want to follow Jesus all the way. I want a purpose in my heart like Daniel to follow Christ. And right now you want to make that decision. Maybe there's somebody here that you were baptized once and you drifted away from Christ, far away, and you want to look forward to re-baptism. We can talk to you about it and counsel with you about it. Somebody here, by raising your hand, you say, I want to look forward to baptism. Not done that yet. I want to look forward to baptism. I want the Spirit of God to touch my life. I want to look forward to, to following Christ in Bible baptism. Somebody here that the Spirit of God is saying, I want to be re-baptized. I just feel God calling me. You know, if you're looking forward to baptism or rebaptism, we're going to gather with a group of young people right here at the front, and I'm going to invite you to come down, and I want to pray over you right now. So just come down. I'm going to come to the side over here. I'm going to come off the stage and come down to the side. If you want to look forward to baptism or rebaptism, and you need special prayer to make that decision, I just want you to come, and I'll come down, and I'll pray over you, and then we'll end our meeting today. Choir, 
as I'm coming down, let the choir sing. follow Jesus and make that full decision to be baptized. And the song said, I'm going to go to meet with Jesus. I want to meet with God. There may be somebody else here. God is touching your heart. God is moving on your life. You have that sense that for you, this is an important moment in your life, and we're not going to rush this. If you sense the Spirit of God is moving on your life, and you've not followed Jesus in Bible baptism yet, but you want to do that, I want you to just to come down, and I'm going to pray over you. I'm going to ask God to give you the strength. God bless you, young lady. I'm going to ask God to give you the courage. Somebody says, I'm too weak. We all are too weak. Somebody says, I don't know enough. That's not the issue of what you know. The issue is the commitment of your heart. And when you make the commitment of your heart, knowledge comes very quickly. Maybe you were baptized once. You may be a young person or an adult. And you drifted far away. And you know that Christ is speaking to you. You feel the tugging in your heart. You feel that sense that Jesus is, is calling you. I'm just going to invite you to come. Just come right now. I'll give you one moment and then we'll pray.
We're living on the knife edge of eternity. And maybe you have drifted away. And this is your time. God bless you. Come. God bless you. You've drifted away and you're saying, I want to come back. This is a decision I need to make. Some coming down the center aisle. God bless you. You come. The door is open. God bless you. You come. The door of mercy is open. Soon GYC will be over. And this auditorium will be used for secular purposes. But at this moment, the Spirit of God is here. At this moment, God is working on hearts. At this moment, God is touching people. And if you're touched by His Spirit, if you sense that God has given you a destiny, you may have failed, but this is the day of a new start. A family comes. God bless you. This is a day of new start. This is a day of new beginnings. It's a new year. This can be the greatest year of your life. This can be the year God uses you the most powerfully. Just come. Praise God. Just come. This message was recorded at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.